Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. And we do this show every Sunday starting at 2 o'clock. So I'm inviting you along, and we have a very special guest today who just has done a musical for Netflix, and I'm going to introduce you to her, Deborah Messing. And Deborah has just come off Broadway. She, you know Deborah Messing. She's one of the most prolific actresses we have, and an interesting amazing person so stay right here because deborah messing is one of today's guests on the sunday edition of the joan hamburg show the first lady of new york radio this is joan eats it's hard to believe that summer is coming to an end and if you have a craving Maine style lobster rolls and you're not going to Maine you can actually get them by mail Maine style lobster roll kits McLoon's M-C-L-O-O-N-S Lobster Shack is sold on goldbelly.com and this is one of Maine's best lobster shops they have great lobster rolls the shack is still there but we love gold bellies. That's the mail order where you can get any food you've ever dreamt of. And McLoon's Maine Lobster Roll Kit, four pack for $99.95. That's a sale price. But you get a pound of lobster tail, knuckle, and claw, four New England rolls, Casco Bay artisan sea salt butter mayo, roll sleeves instruction, they're caught on the day they're sent, they're steamed, and they are delicious. The Lobster Guy was voted the number one lobster shipper for 2022 by Consumer Reviews. Go on to thelobsterguy.com, and they're also delicious. And Luke's Lobster Roll Kits, lukeslobster.com, family-owned main business, third-generation lobster man, Luke Holden. They have multiple locations in Manhattan, and they're really delicious. The kit costs $125 with free shipping. The website, lukelobster.com. And honestly, you wouldn't believe how good they are. So lobster rolls get you through the end of this too-fast summer and enjoy every bite. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Jean Hamp Carlitz is a very prolific writer, 
has been writing books for years, and yet she came out with a book fairly recently called um, The Plot, and everyone was talking about that book. And now Jean has another book, a novel called The Latecomer, and I couldn't put this book down either. It's I'm not going to tell you everything because I hate to do that with fiction, but it's about a pair of triplets, the Oppenheimer triplets, Harrison, Lewin, and Sally, and these are three siblings that you would think are tied all together, but the truth is they hate each other. They really the can't family, stand one another. Right? Can't stand right, absolutely. it. And they're born to very wealthy, successful Jewish Americans. They live mm-hmm. in Brooklyn Heights in a gorgeous home. They go to the vineyard. There's a family business. And the three of them are as different as can be. But I'm curious, Jean, all your books, we love hearing where they came from, what was going on. Where did this come from in your head? Well, I think like many writers and maybe many people, I'm obsessed with families. I mean, families are kind of, for a novelist, families are just the gift that keeps on giving. You can write, you know, 50 novels about families and none of them will be like any of the others. And in this case, you know, I was thinking a lot about birth order and children born later into you know, technically the same family, but it's a different family if you let, you know, 5, 10, 15, 18 years in this case go by between the kids. And then when you add, uh, you know, infertility interventions, you know, there's a whole other layer of randomness and kind of human interference. And in this case, there are four embryos sharing a Petri dish, three go into the mom and they're the ones that are are not supposed to make it. It's it's the fourth one who's going to be sent off to somebody with a more competent, you know, reproductive system. Right. Uh, but in fact, all three of these triplets, uh, you know, survive and become the Oppenheimer triplets. And only 18 years later, do the parents make this kind of crazy decision to have that fourth child? And, you know, my question was always what has to be happening in a family for that to seem like a good idea. Something has got to be really, really wrong in a family uh, to, to make that crazy decision. Well, and there's a lot of conflict in this yeah, family kind of, and yeah. surprising conflict and things happen all the time. Yeah. And these yeah. triplets not only don't want to deal with their mother and father, but they can't stand each other. No, which and they don't. Un- they don't really view this late child, this latecomer, as any part of their own lives. They're about to leave for college. They want out. Uh, the fact that mom and dad are uh, starting all over with an infant as soon as they are out the door is, you know, disgusting as far as they're concerned. And the other big question is, you know, what's it going to be like for that kid when they realize, um, you know, the, all of the implications of that 
birth order and that huge gap. Um, and, and in fact, that latecomer is having an entirely different life experience than their older siblings. So a lot of craziness in this family. I love writing about characters who are just not nice people, not not terrifically good people. Um, you know, I, I never mind being told by readers that the, the characters are unlikable, at least at the outset. I, you know, I think that's terrific. Um, not everybody, you know, likes that, but, but I do. No, and you got the fact that you could have three siblings and each one is going to have a different childhood. My brother yes. always said to me, I can't believe we have the same parents. Right. Well, we grew up you in know, the same house. Like, even, what, what even the, the, the difference between the first child and the second child is enormous. Because when you're a first child, your parents are terrified. They don't know what they're doing. They've never had a child before. When the second child comes along, they know what to expect. And that's a different childhood experience. So, I mean, birth order is endlessly fascinating, I think. Without question. And I have to tell you, which I thought you did so brilliantly, was the father of the family mm -hmm. from the very beginning has a response to pictures, to paintings, to art mm -hmm. that is really extraordinary and will make you, if you don't really understand art or have any interest, the impact that art can have on people's lives, how they literally, some people overcome by yeah. what to you may look like a mess of color <laughs> and, yeah. and someone else, something extraordinary. Yeah, that that is actually a real thing. It's called the Stendhal syndrome, and it's uh, it's it was named in the 19th century for for European tourists who literally fainted before great art. And when uh, this father, Salo Oppenheimer, who's going to build his own private museum of incredibly important, you know, mid 20th century paintings, uh, first encounters a, a Cy Twomley in a, in a, in a uh, museum in Europe, he literally faints before it. And, and uh, that is just his first encounter with the art that is going to impact him so deeply. He's a very troubled guy and he's, uh, he's been responsible through an accident, a terrible accident for the deaths of two people. And this is, you know, this is not a spoiler. It's in the first paragraph of the novel. Um, but art is the only thing that really uh, helps him at all. And I have to admit that I am not particularly knowledgeable about art. Um, but I have a friend who uh, who is, and I reached out to that friend, and uh, and we we kind of together put put together the the fantasy art collection of this character. Oh, and it's really good. It's also not only about art collecting, but it's about, and I understand that so well, because for over 11 years, we lived in rural Vermont. And the mm -hmm. highlight was going to yard sales, tag sales, <laughs> old houses, going through yes. such garbage, and you yes. would find a treasure. Yeah, and that's and and you have them finding treasures, 
And that was yeah, never that's... part of your DNA? Well, no, I'm quite an obsessive, you know, garage seller and, and flea marketer and antiques person. But I'm, I'm you know, I have a, the, the flip side of collecting is, is hoarding. And, you know, I love all these TV shows about hoarding. I'm totally obsessed with them. And, and one of the triplets does sort of go down into that world, not as a hoarder, but as somebody who goes into these houses and kind of liberates them. And all of these things kind of weave together with, with the story of these four kids. There's a triplet who becomes a right wing ideologue. There's one who almost converts to a different religion. Um, you know, they all are going in different directions and it's really up to this latecomer, this child born 18 years later, whom they could not get away from fast enough, who really brings them together and kind of um, solves the riddle of their family. And that's why it's so satisfying, um, especially those, the last third of the book is really a kind of very joyful, um, you know, coalescing of of these storylines, you, you, you got to get there. But once you're there, I'm told that um, it's you can't stop reading at that point. I couldn't no, stop well, writing at that point. Well, and I couldn't stop reading. Did you know an Oppenheimer family before no, you created not really. them? I mean, I, um, in terms of the name, I mean, the name was chosen, uh, nothing to do with the father of the atom bomb. The name was chosen um, in in homage to a real person who lived in the 18th century who uh, was a scapegoat uh, and a martyr, a Jewish martyr in Stuttgart. Um, he he was known as as uh, Oppenheimer, and his kind of nom de plume was Yudzus. And 200 years later, Goebbels made a propaganda film about him called Zeus, which was used to fire up anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. So I wanted to uh, remind people that this was a real person. In real life, he had no living descendants. But so the nice thing about being a novelist is that you do control the world. You are in charge. And I, I was able to make this family, the Oppenheimers of Brooklyn, um, descendants. Right, and and you also uh, threw in real estate too. That yeah, you know, always. <laughs> but that real like estate to be is sure good. Not to write about great houses. I know we love great houses, and we, we love, love all houses. the discoveries that we have in this book. And the book is funny too. So, what when the plot a huge success? The book prior to this. Yes. What's happened to that book? Well, it's uh, it's about to be filmed. Uh, it's going to star Mahershala Ali, and that's very exciting. I am not involved in uh, the making of it, but uh, the producer keeps me posted on uh, where we are, and I think they're going to start filming in January. So that's really exciting. And The Latecomer also is being developed for... Uh, television for a limited series, and uh, we're not as far along on that one, so I have nothing to report. But um, you know, I think it's going to be a great TV show. There, there, there are a lot of great parts in this book, and um, and and I think actors 
enjoy playing complicated, flawed, not very nice people as much as uh, some of us enjoy writing them. I know. And are you still doing your pop-up book sessions? I am. And and what a timely question, because just today, the fall schedule uh, was posted on the website and on Eventbrite, and we've got Steve Martin, and we've got A.M. Holmes, and Edmund White, and there's a real mix of, of books, Chris Pavone, and uh, Taffy Brodeser, Ackner, and it's a great list this fall. And we're doing them in person in Manhattan. Everybody has to be vaccinated and masked. Uh, but we're also doing them online simultaneously. So if you're not in in New York um, or, you you know, the event you're interested in is sold out, you can attend over Zoom. And, and the Zoom attendees also get to ask the author questions. So... It's a lot of work, but I have to say it's a lot of fun, too. I'm sure. And I love your story. You've written books since you came out of school. And yet, when you write a book that everyone talks about, it's like a new discovery. I know. I was an overnight success at 60 years old. Pretty funny. (laughs) Uh, Overnight success with my seventh novel. But, you know, I... I am a grateful person, and I I was always very aware that for a midlist author like myself to continue to be published um, and and well published was, you know, nothing to sneeze at. It was, you know, a real accomplishment, and I, it could not have happened without really a devoted agent who never cut me loose Eva. because I never made any money um, and a great editor who believed in me. And, and, and in fact, who believed in me so much that she wouldn't let me publish the latecomer until it was right. And that, that meant turning it down several times before it was right. So, I mean, I, I am incredibly supported by these two women and I, it's, it's not empty speech to say that I wouldn't be here without them. Well, it's a very exciting time in your life. Congratulations. Thank you, Joan. I love reading it. It's by Jean Hennep Carlitz, and it's Celadon Books. All the best to you and your family. We'll talk again. Thanks, Joan. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show, Talk Radio 77 WABC. Deborah Messing works 
more than almost any actor I know. In fact, I just saw her on Netflix in a new show, a new film called 13, The Musical. And I was really curious. I've watched Deborah Messing work in so many things. She just was on Broadway in Birthday Candles. You've seen her in major TV series. And this was a little bit of a departure. She sings, she dances, she knows so much stuff about so many things, and her kid is about to have a bar mitzvah. In this film, it's about a family breakup, they're divorced, and the mom, played by Deborah, goes off to her hometown, small town, to move back in with her mother. So what attracted you to this? which was charming, but a little bit different. Oh, so many things. Um, well, first, firstly, uh, I had never seen it, but I, but I knew that, um, you know, it was, it, the music was from a Tony-nominated writer. And, um, and so I knew, I knew that it was a special piece. And I also knew that the, the original the original Broadway show only had had kids. There were no adults at all in that production. And um, when Neil Marin, who produced it, he also produced the movie Chicago, and he's he's produced everything basically that has anything to do with singing on TV right. or film. Um, he, he was my executive producer for my TV show Smash which was about the behind the scenes of Broadway. And he reached out and he said, you know, we want you to do this. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. So mm. I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> and it was up in Toronto when they were completely locked down, more locked down than the United States. Yeah. And, um, and then they said, we're writing a song for you. And I was like, hold up. And, you know, I grew up listening to all the, the Broadway musicals. My mother was actually in a, a teenage quartet when she was in her teen years. Um, so singing was a big part of my family. And uh, the idea of having to sing a song absolutely terrified me. And that's usually a barometer that's one of the barometers I use to whether or not I should do something. If I'm terrified, I, I, that means I have to do it. And it I read that you had COVID then too, which had an impact on your voice. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I, it, it, it there was a lot to contend with. I had a very bad case of COVID and, mm. um, and so I, I called my singing teacher and, you know, and we hadn't been able to work in a year because of my COVID. And I was like, can, can we do this in time? Can we rebuild my lung capacity? Can we do this? And she's like, yes, we can do this. And so we worked so hard for one month straight. And I learned the song. And I, when I got the offer, my son overheard and said, 13. You have to do it. You have to do it. And I was like, how do you, how do you know 13? 
and he he had gone to a performing arts camp called Frenchwood. Um, oh, I remember they, that camp. Yes, and they they did it there, and he saw it there, and he said, "You have to do it. The music is fantastic." So that that pretty much sealed the deal, and um, you know, I was off to Canada and sat in a hotel room for two full weeks to quarantine, which was um, very fascinating to, to be in a room by yourself for two weeks (laughs) and to have uh, government officials knocking on your door every day at different hours of the night to make sure that you're really in there. Um, But then, but then, you know, we began and I, I went in and rehearsed the song with, uh, with Eli and uh, who plays my son, incredible Eli Golden. Yeah, he did and, great too. Yeah, he's amazing. And so that's how we begun. And my very, very first day of filming was the song. And mm-hmm. uh, which also scared me. I was like, wait a minute, the ve- you're, you're making me do that the first day? <laughs> <laughs> when nobody knows me, where like I don't have any sort of like people, sort of you know pulling for me, and uh, and they're like we, we want we want to do it first. So so that was it. And then I had the privilege of just watching these twelve year old kids just blow me away with their incredible talent, their singing and their dancing. The thing that made this I, for me so special was unlike every other, you know, school musical movie that you've seen, these kids were really 12 and 13 and not 18 and 19 playing 12 and 13. And so, you know, what you really, really, you really felt that they were 12. And, um, and then I got to play with Rhea Perlman, who is, That's you know, so a television comedic legend. Uh-huh. And um, we both worked with Jimmy Burroughs, but had never had the chance to work together. So, you know, everything, everything just laid out as like, okay, th- this is a done deal. And also, I might say, it was very important to them that the cast members be Jewish, which I thought was Did very you- interesting. It is interesting. Um, did you care about that? Um, I did. I, I, you know, I, I was grateful when I heard that, um, because, <laughs> to be honest, over my career, there have been times when I have not gotten a part, and the feedback has been, "She's too ethnic looking," mm. and. Um, you know, so so to have them want to be completely authentic uh, really meant a lot to me. And um, I was just stunned when when I saw that he was actually going to be reading the Haftorah, right. like it, not just one line, like, you know, the last scene in the bar in the bar mitzvah, he is singing in Aaliyah for a while. And. I just started crying. I couldn't stop crying mm-hmm. when all those kids stood up and started singing along. I just felt like, you know, this is important because there are people out there who have no idea what a bar mitzvah is, who have never met 
anyone who is Jewish. And, you know, this is going to be seen globally. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to address otherness, you know, coming into a community, being the only Jewish kid, what, what that's like to be an outsider, and ultimately being completely welcomed and accepted and realizing that all the kids are exactly the same, that, that it was no different. Right. And I thought and you, it was a beautiful message. And beautifully done. And you had actually experienced this when your family moved to Rhode Island and you yes. were one of what, two or three Jewish kids and you had to fit in and start all over again. So this really had to resonate with you. Oh, absolutely. I, I felt like, you know what? I, I know this. I know what this feels like. Um, yes, I was one of three. And, uh, you know, we had um, the, the lights at the end of our driveway. I, I live next to a farm, so our driveway was a quarter of a mile long. And we had these big round balls at the end by the, by the mailbox and they were hit with bats and destroyed and the mailbox as well, more times than I can even count. Mm. And, you know, it, it was something that was just a constant reminder that there were people who didn't like us. And I was young and I was like, I don't understand. I don't understand right. why they don't like us. And then um, one Halloween, my grandfather was visiting and we woke up the next morning and my grandfather's car had a swastika painted on it. Oh, no. And that was the first time I even saw a swastika. And my mother just, she just was paralyzed by it. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. You know, she made me go back into the house and I could tell that she was just devastated so by it. Mm. And um, and I think it took me to, to grow up and to have a lot of different experiences and different cultures to finally, as an adult, realize the impact that that had on me as a child and and how very specific that uh, an experience that was and to honor it. That's interesting. And your own child has had a very different kind of childhood, right? Oh, absolutely. The absolute opposite. He's, he's grown up in the center of New York City and Brooklyn. Mm. So from, you know, the time that he could walk, he and I have been walking down the street, seeing every color skin, hearing every language right. spoken, every socioeconomic level, you know, on the subway, it, it was, it was the, the upbringing that I wish that I had had, that right. I was well, grateful that I was able to give to my son. Right. But when you were growing up, that town was a small enough town where you still got to do things like theater and things that yes, you loved. That was, that was my, my um, oasis. That, that was that was where um, I knew I was a hundred percent welcome and and also I realized that I can be somebody else entirely 
so, you know, being able to become someone else with a different name and different needs and different situations, um, I felt like I was in a way going into like a protective bubble and it felt Mm. really great and it felt exciting. And ultimately it, it sparked something creatively in me. Which, which lasted, but you, after you got out of Brandeis, you actually started working very soon and starting to do TV and a lot of stuff that a lot of performers don't do or get a chance to do. Well, right after I graduated graduate school, right after Brandeis, I went straight to New York and was accepted into the NYU graduate acting program. And so there were, I was one of 15 students to graduate after three years of 80 hours a week, every week, studying every, every aspect of the craft. And uh, when I got out, I was incredibly lucky because I, I got a, a theater job in Seattle, the importance of being earnest right away. And then I came back and, you know, within that first year, I, I was doing an off-Broadway play and then I got my first TV gig and then I got my first movie. And they were successful. But, you know, it, it, they, they were successful in that they, they, yes, they were successful. Yeah. I mean, I I just was so grateful that you know uh, it was the, the the TV show wasn't canceled after two episodes, which was happening right. a lot back then. Um, and the movie, I, I had never been on a movie set, so I was just you know trying to not fail miserably. You know, the first, the first day when you show up on a movie set, you know, and you, you start the camera, all the different cameramen, they put colorful tape on the floor where you need to to stand as you walk through a scene so that they can have light on you and they can um, focus on you. I had no idea about that. So we would start and say action. And then I would walk and I would not be on my mark and they'd be like, cut, Deborah, you missed your mark. Okay. 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 And then I go back, cut, Deborah, you missed your mark. Okay. Okay. Deborah, you missed your mark. What's a mark? And then they Uh told me, and (laughs) you know, so it was, I I was as wet behind the ears as you could possibly be. And I was so proud to be a part of that, that movie. Right, and learning on the job. Do you remember what movie that was, your first? That was A Walk in the Clouds with Keanu Reeves. Unbelievable. And then at what point did Grace come into your life? Um, after After that film, I went back to New York and did a two-hander play by Donald Margulies um, called Collected Stories um, that at the time had been, you know, one of the most creatively fulfilling and challenging things I'd ever done. I was so happy. And then I got a call 
that there was this this TV show on ABC called Prey, P-R-E-Y, that had been in pre-production and they had their lead actress and now they were 10 days away from the first day and they were firing her. Mm. And they wanted me to step in as the lead in a drama. And so, you know, I took a leap of faith and we packed up and, you know, we moved back to LA and we, we were counter programming for a little comedy called friends at the time. Mm. Um, We were on ABC. And so we shot a half a season but I was working 18 hours every single day and getting up at 4.30 in the morning. And um, I, I couldn't function. And so when the, when the season ended, I called my agents and I said, I'm going, I'm getting into bed. Don't call me for three months. And then, mm-hmm. you know, within a couple of days, they called and said, we have a script for you. And I'm like, no, I can't. I'm telling you, I can't, I can't, I have no energy. And they're like, we are going to messenger over the script, stay in bed, but read it because it's a special script. And mm. that was Will and Grace. And that was and, another yeah. huge beginning. That was eight years. Yeah, that, that was, that, that changed my life for sure. And still changes your life but you were very unusual in that although that idea is so strong you still went on to do other things including broadway yes yes broadway was always you know always my dream always my my very first goal start from the time that i was you know five and um i had been offered opportunities, um, but they never fit into the schedule with Will and Grace because we had a, a finite amount of time off in between seasons. And then, and then we finished, and then I did my very first um, Broadway show, uh, John Patrick Shanley's um, play. He wrote Doubt, the play, and uh-huh. uh, ultimately the movie Doubt, um, outside Mullingar. And that was uh, just an, an incredibly magical, scary, wonderful thing. And um, and then I went on to do Smash, and then the TV show, and which I loved, loved, loved. And then um, Mysteries of Laura, and then um, I I got this Broadway show that I was just dying to do. And the um, then the pandemic came, and we were two weeks into rehearsal when all of Broadway was shut down. Yeah, and we didn't know if we were ever going to come back and be able to do the play, which was devastating. And so we just all sat in our apartment, you know, waiting for the world waiting to heal. Waiting it out. Yeah. And, and the sad thing is, is there were so many extraordinary plays that, you know, previewed so, for three nights mm-hmm. and then the, it, then the pandemic shut them down and they never came back, I you know, know. Um, so hard. Who's, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, Laura, Laura Metcalf, Laurie Metcalf, 
um, was starring in that and they only did three previews and, you know, to have, for that to have happened, I I just, I can't even imagine. So when they called and said, we're doing this, I was like, I'm in, I don't care when it is. I don't care where it is. I'm in. And so they were like, okay, just sit back. We're going to figure out, you know, a theater for it, a space for it. And, um, and finally, that's what I've been doing over the last year. And um, we had this beautiful run and um, it, it was glorious. It reminded me of why I wanted to be an actor. Right. And, but it literally, um, like it broke my back. Like I had, you know, three um, discs you know, bulging discs and, you know, yeah. So I'm still doing PD now, um, recovering from doing eight (laughs) shows a week. But, um, but I, I just feel so grateful because it was, it was the role of a lifetime. And it was fabulous. And now with everything you're doing, what is on the Deborah dream list when you get fully restored? Um, well, Bros is a movie that I'm doing. I have a cameo in that's coming out next month. That's a, that's a Judd Apatow produced comedy. And I have been wanting for 30 years to be in a big, broad uh, comic film. And And there um, it is. This was it. I got a taste of it. And it was so fun and so now I want more now I want you know I want to do a film with with a bigger part in it and um to really sink my teeth into doing something like that I will always I will always turn back to theater there's no question about it um but that schedule it's inhumane and so, you know, you can't do it every year. You have to, you need a few years in between. Um, and it, you know, it, it costs you money to do Broadway. You know, they don't mm-hmm. pay enough for you to pay your rent and right. utilities and everything. So then you have to find work that actually pays you so you can sustain your family. Right. You need a TV, a new TV yeah. series. Yes. so that you can do everything else. But it's all possible, and yeah. everything looks good. I'm very happy for you. And, Thank you so much. And can't wait to see the next Deborah adventure. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> take, take care. When it happens, we'll talk again. I look forward to it. All the best to okay. you and your family. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Deborah. Lovely to talk to you. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. A lot of you have texted me or emailed or whatever asking, are there any thoughts for getaways for the last weekend of summer? Well, the answer is yes, but at a price. I really was, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. Prices are high 
for accommodations. You know, restaurants have gotten very expensive, but here's what we found. One of my favorites, Mohonk Mountain House in New Paltz, New York, in the Hudson Valley, a historic landmark, farm-to-table food, an award-winning spa. They offer in the price three gourmet meals, all kinds of activities, hiking, biking, tennis, swimming, boating, golf, and spa. Rates for the Labor Day weekend start at $9.78 a night plus tax for two for a queen room. And then Woodstock Inn and Resort in beautiful Woodstock, Vermont, is absolutely lovely. A few king rooms available starting at $7.33 a night plus tax and fees. And of course, Gurney's Montauk Resort and Seawater Spa right on the beach. Expensive, $1,369 a night plus tax and gratuities. Places like the Driftwood on the ocean in Montauk also are expensive. And if you want bargains, the reeds at Shelter Haven in Stone Harbor, New Jersey, near Cape May, has rooms available for under 800 and very nice. And Cape May hotels like the uh, Perwinkle, a two-star family hotel, actually have rooms for under 500 during Labor Day weekend. So just a look. It takes work and phoning and the computer, but you can get something. <laughs> 